The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Well, I'm delighted that we're joined for the Culture Club today by one of the most prolific and popular crime fiction writers, Ian Rankin. Thank you so much for joining us here on the programme. And latest Rebus novel, 24 at this stage. How do you keep coming up with the ideas? The real world gives me ideas all the time. You sort of read a newspaper, you listen to the news on the radio, you meet someone in a bar, they tell you a story. These, you know, themes and stories are floating around all over the place. Sometimes what you've got to do as a writer is block them off because there are just too many. But as I get older, I'm slowing down a bit. I am slowing down a bit. I used to write two books a year when I was young and skint. Um, So I just need one good idea every two years, Matt. One good idea every two years. And you certainly come up with it, but... Police corruption is something that now you have the opportunity to examine in the latest novel, uh, A Heart Full of Headstones. And also maybe perhaps that some of the things that you had your central character do over the years would not necessarily be acceptable at this part of the 21st century? Um, Absolutely not acceptable and probably shouldn't have been acceptable then. But, you know, look at the news. Whenever you look at the news, there's always yet another case of police corruption or police brutality or police doing something wrong, crossing the line. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's harder to get away with it these days because everybody's got a mobile phone. There's lots of CCTV. There are kind of um, online journalists who are going to who are going to grab these stories and run with them. And yet, and yet, and yet, the police still think they can get away with it. And uh, you hope it's not endemic. You hope it's just a case of a few bad apples. But what the police have been very bad at in the past and now, they will cover up. So they'll cover up and cover up and cover up for cops who have crossed the line instead of actually punishing them. And if you don't punish them, they'll keep doing it and other people will feel they can do it too. We should keep giving you plenty of material to work with. Plenty of material. Let's get to your choices for the Culture Club because you're very much, your selections have a very heavy Scottish bias as well to them. Well, I wasn't aware of that while I was doing it, but let's find out. (laughs) I think they have, in fairness, but not the very first thing we're going to talk about. We ask every guest on the Culture Club to start by giving us a first single or piece of music that they can remember buying. And you've got a really good one, which I believe you still have. Yeah, this was the first single I bought with my own money. It's on stacks. I can see it as I as I as I say as I say these words to you. Um, it's Isaac Hayes, theme from Shaft. The thing was, I wasn't old enough to get to see the film. Uh, it was an eighteen or an X certificate, and I was ten or eleven. But I bought the book, and I read the paperback, and I bought the single, and it's still a great single. I still own it, and I still play it. Let's hear a bit of it.
What a brilliant first song to purchase. You know, when I first played it, we had a dance record player. It was a mono record player. <clears throat> so, I, you know, I didn't know it was in stereo. Then when I got my first stereo system, I could hear the, it going between the speakers. It goes from left to right and right to left. It was just extraordinary. And what age were you when you finally got to see the movie? Oh, that's a good question. When did I finally see the movie? I would have been in my late teens, I guess. And how did it then live up to your expectations based on the book? Uh, yeah, the book's a very different animal. Uh, the book always is a very different animal. Um, but I thought Richard Roundtree, the, the actor who played Shaft, was perfect time was perfect in the part. And when I came to write my first John Rebus novel, the name John is because he's John Shaft. You that know, much of an influence on you. That was, that was how big an influence it was on me. But then when you think about it, you're not allowed to watch movies, allegedly, until you get <clears> to a certain age, but you can read the book. What do you make of that type of censorship? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? People think, oh, you shouldn't see this stuff, but we don't mind you reading it. If you're able to read it, you've got a certain cognitive ability. And I, that was what got me reading adult books was the fact that I wasn't old enough to go and see the. So I would, I would, what would I read? The Godfather, I read when I was twelve. Um, uh, Clockwork Orange, Jaws, The Exorcist, French Connection. There was a bunch of them that were made into movies that I wasn't allowed to see, and yet I could borrow them from the library, and if I had enough money, I could buy the paperback. Uh, and my parents didn't blink at buying me The Godfather for my Christmas when I was twelve years old. Did they know what was in it? No, absolutely no idea. They hadn't seen, they hadn't seen the film either. <laughs> and then how do the movies compare for you as a book lover when you actually get to see them? Do most of them match the book? I always find that it's never quite the way I imagined it. So, for example, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm glad I read the book before I saw the film because you can't then go and read the book and not see Jack Nicholson in the main role. And yet, the way that the character is described in the book is very different from Jack Nicholson's character. In the He's got red hair and a ponytail, I seem to remember, in the book. Um, and it's the same with things like uh, Tess of the Durbervilles. If you see the film Tess, you're going to see Natasha Kinsky. Whereas when you read the book, you've got your own imagination. Yeah, that's why I never watch an episode of Rebus on TV. I do not want actors getting in the way of the pictures that are in my head. So do you, have you watched them, though? I mean, you must watch them, no? No, what? no, I've never, never, ever watched an episode of Rebus. Is that almost a, a fear of what they might do to your creation? No, it, honestly, it's just the fact that, because I know they'll make changes, obviously they'll make changes for television, the books will be changed out of all recognition. It doesn't bother me too much. What bothers me is that I might sit down to write the next book and suddenly I've got an actor's mannerisms, tics, way of speaking, etc. in my head instead of the guy that I've spent the last 30 years with. Okay, let's move on to some more of your musical choices and you have a terrific, again, Scottish influence album. This is why I brought this up. John Martin, who of course lived for many years in Ireland before he died in Kilkenny and you've gone to his album Solid Air. Why have you picked this? Um, Solid Air is just one of those albums that I, I fell in love with when I was a teenager and uh, an absolutely gorgeous album. A friend of mine was a huge fan of John Martin and I was a huge fan of this friend so I thought I'd better get into John Martin to stay friends with my friend. And we're still friends. He, he, uh, he lives in London now. But uh, I only ever got to see John Martin play once live when I was in my teens and he was absolutely fantastic. This album, is something about it. Every time I've moved anywhere in the world, the first thing I do is set up the hi-fi system and the first thing I do is put on solid air and it tells me straight away whether this hi-fi system is set up correctly or not. It's a lovely, warm, rich sound. It's not quite folk. It's not quite jazz. He's a singer-songwriter. He's a phenomenally gifted musician. The voice of an angel but he could also be a devil. Yes. Let's hear the beautiful May You Never. May you 
few voices like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's he had a kind of chorister's purity to him, and yet a chorister who's been smoking and drinking a bit too much. Which he did a lot of. <laughs> Which he certainly did a lot of. Uh, I mean, there were some misadventures in his life, for sure. Um, and he wrote one of the great breakup albums, um, Grace and Danger, as well. Which is a terrific album. Phenomenal. Um, uh, uh, and he had some help on that uh, from someone else who was going through a divorce at the time as well. I think Phil um, Collins Phil played Collins, drums yeah. That, yeah. So Phil sang on it and played drums on it, and the two of them would help each other, sort of give each other a helping hand while they were going through dark times. Yeah, no, and he, he, it's a beautiful album. And I, I just imagined early on when I was writing the John Rebus novels that I could, Rebus would be sitting late at night with a glass of good whiskey in his armchair and he would be playing John Martin. Go to your favourite band or artist, Jackie Levine, is that how I pronounce it? Jackie Levin. Levin, sorry. Levin. There's a town in, it's not his real name. Okay. But there's a town in Fife where he grew up and where I grew up and the town is called Leven and he just named himself after that. An extraordinary character um, who started off as a folkie in the 60s, reinvented himself several times. He was in a fairly aggressive band called Doll by Doll in the era of punk and new wave and people who saw them live said they were terrifying. Um, he was then attacked in the street in London and lost his voice and lost his confidence and turned to drugs and then weaned himself off and started a charity to help other people come off drugs, reinvented himself as a sort of Scottish troubadour, a singer-songwriter. And again, a great voice. You might see some similarities with John Martin, a fantastic acoustic guitarist, terrific um, uh, lyrics. Now, I thought Rebus would be a fan of his music, and it turned out Jackie Levin was a fan of my books. And he was reading one of my books on an airplane somewhere and he saw himself mentioned. So he got in touch with my publisher, put us in touch with each other. We ended up working together. We made an album together. We toured with the album. And then he got ill and he didn't tell anybody about it. And he, and he was dead. And that oh. was it. And I have kept his memory burning as far as I can by referencing his songs in many of my book titles. So the latest book... A Heart Full of Headstones is a line from Jackie's song, Single Father. Um, standing in Another Man's Grave is a misheard lyric. I thought he was singing that. He was actually singing Standing in Another Man's Rain. Saints of the Shadow Bible is a line from one of his songs that I could never understand and I never got the chance to ask him what it meant. So I wrote it into a book to try and make sense of it. Um, and he's just terrific. And he's from the same part of the world as me, similar kind of background, earthy, down-to-earth, working class, etc., etc., and he reinvented himself, and I just love the fact that he reinvented himself and was very comfortable eventually in his own skin. Let's hear a little bit of Poor Town. I'm from Poor Town, where the river leaving runs. The mills are gone, the reservoir. 
How did you, when you went on tour, what did you do on the tour? Did you sing? What did you play? He got in touch with me and he said, look, I'm doing this festival called Celtic Connections in Glasgow. Do you want to come on stage and just read a bit out from one of your books? And I said, well, why don't we do something a bit more special than that? I'm going to write a short story that will reference what I see are some of the themes in your songs. And he then wrote some songs to comment on that story. And the story was called Jackie Leaven Said. So it's a kind of pun um, on Jackie Wilson Said. And we did it live and it went down a storm in Glasgow and we were asked to do it again in Edinburgh at the festival there and we recorded it live. So it came out as a double CD. Um, and it was it was great. It was great to do. And uh, and we did a few more of those events up and down the UK, folk festivals and what have you. Um, and it was lovely. But he, he, he phoned me up before we went on tour and he said, oh, Ian, what do you want on your rider? I said, what's a rider? He said, it's your backstage requirements for the dressing room. I said, I'm a writer. We don't get any of that rubbish. You know. I said, you do it. You're the musician. So I got to the first event we were doing, which was the Royal Festival Hall in London. We were sharing a huge dressing room and I walked in. His side of the dressing room was covered in stuff. Fresh fruit, a, a, a mini bar, a this, the, that and the other, drinks, mixers, chocolate, crisps, uh, fresh towels, all kinds of, all, just stuff. My side of the room, nothing. And then a backstage member of staff appeared, kicked open the door, held something in his hand and said, which one of you expletive deleteds ordered a haggis? <laughs> Jackie had put in the rider, Mr. Rankin requires one uncooked haggis at every venue. <laughs> Just for a laugh. Just for a laugh. OK, Ian Rankin, let's move on to gigs because you have quite a few that you're nominated as the best gig you were at. Yeah, I mean, this was tough. I mean, I, I think I mentioned people like the Sensational Alex Harvey Band and Tom Waits. I could have mentioned Mogwai. There's a lot I could have mentioned. Um, but Nick Cave, he's such a special performer right now, has been for the past few years, very, very powerful. And every gig is different. Every gig feels personal. And it can be in the biggest venue possible and it still seems intimate. And that's an extraordinary gift. And, of course, we know that he's been through some... Terrible times, personal tragedies, you know, two sons who have died. And he's channeled it into his art. He's channeled it into his art. That's his way of dealing with it. And in some, you know, in a very small way, I've kind of dealt with personal stuff in my books by giving it to Rebus, using him as a punch bag. Um, And the one gig I do remember when it cave was, it was my birthday and he was playing Edinburgh. And I knew the promoter. The promoter said, come backstage after as a wee treat on your birthday and meet him. So I got to go backstage and he wasn't there. He wasn't in the dressing room. I said, well, where is he? They said, oh, he's, he's out the back in the lane behind the theatre meeting the diehard fans. And I looked out the window and looked down and there was Nick Cave meeting 20, 30 absolute diehard fans, getting photographs, taking them. This guy just walked off stage after an intense tour concert. He was still out there with the fans. And I just thought that's a bit special. 
Let's hear a little bit. A live version of the ship song by Nick Cave with the Bad Seeds. from the Bad Seeds and the Ship Song. Ian Rankin is with us for the Culture Club. We'll be back with more of his choices after this break. Welcome back. Ian Rankin, the brilliant crime novelist, is with us for the Culture Club this week. His new novel, the latest in the Rebus series, is A Heart Full of Headstones. But let's move to movies. And I said earlier that the Scottish theme running through this, and you've picked was probably the sweetest Scottish movie that I think I can think of anyway. Um... I suppose Gregory's Girl is a sweet movie. It's a charming movie, but it's gritty as well. Yeah. I mean, this is Newtown, Scotland. This is teenagers growing up in a new town. It's a concrete jungle, um, but their but their wit and and their um, something gets them through it. Something gets them through it. And this incredibly gauche hero, Gregory. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's going to get the girl, but possibly not the girl that he thought he was going to get at the start of the film. And it's it's just it is a charming film. You're right. There was a cinema in Edinburgh when I arrived there as a student. There was a cinema in Edinburgh, the Dominion Cinema. It was owned by a family, and they played it every night for five or ten years. And the manager would come out and introduce it, and we would we went and saw it many times. Uh, and I, I could probably just sit here and do the entire script to but you. We'll right hear now. a little bit and then tell us more. For those who aren't familiar with the movie, you can tell us more about that. We hear an extract. This is a real farce. Nine games lost in a row, and what do we do? Sack the goalie and put a girl on the forward line. It's a madhouse. Watch the game, Andy. Watch the game. She's good. She can move. It's not right. It's unnatural. This ain't even look nice. It's modern, Andy. It's good. Modern girls, modern boys. It's tremendous, look. Girls weren't made to play football. It's too tough, too physical. Tough? Have you ever seen them playing a hockey? They're like wild animals. Even at 12 and 13, they'd kill you. You know, hockey was invented by the Red Indians. It's a form of torture. They used to make the cowboys play the squaws. Shit, that was lacrosse. Directed and written by Bill Forsythe and starring John Gordon Sinclair, Dee Hepburn and Claire Grogan. Yeah, and it is phenomenal. I mean, these people are not professional actors. I mean, a lot of them you got from a, a youth theatre, if you got them from anywhere, and some of them hadn't even been to a youth theatre. They just thought they looked apart. One guy got the, the job in an earlier Bill Forsyth film because he was actually a trainee police officer and he had his own uniform, so he played the cop um, uh, in the film. So I just think it's a lovely film. It's it's perfect. I mean, you can watch it and re-watch it and there will be a gag you didn't, a visual gag you didn't get first time round or a line you didn't hear the first time round. You know, um, that's lacrosse. It makes me, everything makes me laugh in this film. Um, and it's very, you know, having grown up in, uh, in, in Scotland in the 70s, having been a, a gawky 
teenager who couldn't really talk to girls. I mean, I just relate so much to it. I just relate. And going down the town centre for chips, because you know, that's what you do. You've got enough money for a bag of chips, so you go and get a bag of chips, and you just hang around the telephone box, hoping somebody might phone and tell you there's a party going on somewhere. And the school, the teachers, the you know, some of the teachers are a bit creepy. There's two teachers sort of lusting after teenage girls and that, and I'm going, oh God, I remember that from my school. I do remember that. So, and the lovely um, games teacher who eventually does warm to the idea of having a girl playing football. Isn't this extraordinary? England women won, you know, I've just been champions of the world and all the rest of it. And here was a film in which a, a girl was militating to get to play football with the boys and turned out she was better than any of them. And it has come to pass. <laughs> but we're into that at the moment because the Irish team has qualified for the forthcoming World Cup as well so there's a big interest in women's soccer here in Ireland let's move on and uh, let's take your favourite TV show which is a popular choice with many of our guests you've gone for the West Wing I've got I mean I could, there's a lot I could have gone for but the West Wing has always resonated my wife and I used to sit and watch it uh, religiously when it first came out and then we bought the box set DVD so we could watch it again and again and again and I think we would happily sit down and watch it from season one onwards right now. Great writing, great cast, it's very sharp, it's 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 fluid, it takes on some big themes, big storylines. And you go, if this if you know, I want these people in the White House. I want these people in the White House, I want these people in, in, in Downing Street, I want these people everywhere, but we don't get them. It's it's a it's a fantasy of what politics could be if all the right people were in all the right jobs and made all the right choices. But it's brilliant. Let's hear a clip where Martin Sheen as President Jed Bartlett confronts the host of a conservative TV show. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 1822. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21-7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant, tight-ass club, in this building when the president stands, nobody sits. What a magnificent script. What a delivery of that as well. Yeah, Martin Sheen is phenomenal as that. And you know, the first episode of that, he's hardly in it. He only he wasn't arrives meant in the last in couple it. of minutes. No, I know. The president wasn't meant to be part of it. And then he suddenly arrives at the end, the POTUS, president of the United States. Um, it's great. I mean, the casting is great. The writing is amazing. It is amazing. Aaron Sorkin, uh, who created it and did a lot of the early scripts, is an absolute genius. I mean, Sam Seaborn, the character, was meant to be the main character in it. Um, but even, I mean, the series was so good it could survive the actor leaving to go and do other things. Um, and they just, uh, yeah, I mean, come on. 
It's fantastic TV. It's TV as art. Absolutely. I wholly endorse that sentiment. I love the West Wing still. Podcast. Yeah, you've given us a couple of podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I went, you know, I'm a frustrated musician. I'm a frustrated rock star. So I do like to listen to a lot of music and I do listen to a lot of music podcasts. And I was tossing a coin between Rock on Tours, which is presented by the bassist Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp, uh, famously from Spandau Ballet, um, who are both of whom I saw fairly recently because they're playing a show called Saucer Full of Secrets with Nick Mason, a drummer from Pink Floyd, where they play nothing but early Pink Floyd. That's a great podcast. But there's also Mark Ellen and David Hepworth, um, music journalists. They are music fans to their very bones. Um, I've appeared on their show, so come on, I've got some skin in this game. Um, and they do a fantastic... They'll get a guest on every every week and they'll just go through, t- show some of the stuff you've got that's special to you, things that mean something. Musicians, non-musicians, fans, um, and they're great together. Well, we have from Word in Your Ear. Here's where they talk to John Lydon. So, what's your current favourite? Oh, I don't have one at the moment. I'm trying to write new material, and uh, you just don't go there. You don't. You, you, don't. You, you find that's best not to. Yeah, just just dig into your own experiences because you could be subliminally uh, misled. Hello, and and I don't want that. No, no, I don't write much modern stuff anyway. It's very, very fake news. So there must be some act that you really that really did have an impact on your songwriting, though, or some lyricists. Oh, Roy Orbison, Horace Andy. Uh, oh, what's that other bloke? A boxer again. That lovely, sweet voice that I can't sound anything like. So even if I tried to write a song in that vein, it won't sound like it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> then I could get away with murder. Chris Isaacs, that's it. Oh, All right. right. I was never going to guess that. Harry <laughs> oh, Sandy, Chris Isaac. Wow. Roy Orbison, Chris Isaac is John Lydon's choices. Yeah, but he might be saying that tongue in cheek. You never know what. <laughs> he's, a, he's a performer. He's a, he's a construct. So you're never quite sure what you're getting with John Lydon. We left books till the end, um, and I'm sure you must have so many that you would have offered. You've gone for one, Muriel Sparks, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Why is that your favourite book? Oh, gosh. Um, it's a nice short book, but it's a, it's a TARDIS. It's much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. It contains multitudes. So it's a comedy, it's a tragedy, it's got a very complex main character, Miss Brodie, who is both a charismatic teacher, a wonderful individual, but also a monster. Um, you've got the it's a growing up story it's a story of Edinburgh it's very much a story about Edinburgh Um, it's again like Gregory's Girl a a story of young people making their own way in the world sometimes by having to to, to, um, ditch things that have been important to them such as a teacher Uh, you can read it in half a day if you're lucky but if you read it and reread it and reread it as I do every few years you will find stuff in it you didn't you hadn't met before you hadn't come across before um, I was at university, uh, I, I left and then I begged them to let me back because I didn't like the cold, harsh commercial world outside and I went back to do a PhD on the novels of Muriel Spark. And Spark, Jean Brodie, took me back to Jekyll and Hyde and Jekyll and Hyde convinced me that I should start writing crime fiction set in contemporary Edinburgh because Edinburgh was a Jekyll and Hyde city still. Let's hear a little bit from the audiobook of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. At that time, they had been immediately recognisable as Miss Brodie's pupils, being vastly informed on a lot of subjects irrelevant to the authorised curriculum, as the headmistress said, and useless to the school as a school. 
These girls were discovered to have heard of the Buckmanites and Mussolini, the Italian Renaissance painters, the advantages to the skin of cleansing cream and witch hazel over honest soap and water, and the word menarch. The interior decoration of the London house of the author of Winnie the Pooh had been described to them, as had the love lives of Charlotte Bronte and of Miss Brodie herself. They were aware of the existence of Einstein and the arguments of those who considered the Bible to be untrue. They knew the rudiments of astrology, but not the date of the Battle of Flodden or the capital of Finland. All of the Brodie set, save one, counted on its fingers, as had Miss Brodie, with accurate results, more or less. By the time they were sixteen and had reached the fourth form and loitered beyond the gates after school and had adapted themselves to the orthodox regime, they remained unmistakably brody and were all famous in the school, which is to say they were held in suspicion and not much liking. They had no team spirit and very little in common with each other outside their continuing friendship with Jean Brodie. She still taught in the junior department. She was held in great suspicion. That's from the audiobook of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark. You mentioned earlier you don't watch the TV adaptations of the Rebus novels. Do you read other crime fiction? Oh, yeah, I read a lot of crime fiction and uh, and I enjoy it. It, keep, it keeps me on my toes because you, you find out how many great writers are out there, um, not all of them yet discovered. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you've, got to, you've got to know what the competition are up to. You've got to. You've got to keep. You've got to do that. So I do a lot of that, Matt. But I read other stuff as well. I mean, I read. I read widely, and I read. I read. You know, rock biographies and books about film directors and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, but I, you know, I'd, I, I would gladly go back and read nothing but Muriel Spark for the rest of my life. We have to leave it there. It has been brilliant having you for the Culture Club. Ian Rankin's latest novel, The 24th in the Rebus series, is a heart full of headstones. It's been great having you on the programme. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, F-